this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Next up, you're going to hear from Joe Keeley of College Nannies. He sold to Bright Horizons, a public company. And a couple of things that I found really interesting about this session was how important for Joe it was that he was selling his company as it was still growing. He didn't peak. It wasn't on the way down. Um, Bright Horizons had a kind of build or buy decision. They had become a third of his business. So it was an interesting way that he characterized his revenue as a technology company, um, have a listen for the diligence period, things that he listened learned about through going through diligence, which took him 11 months. Um, great valuation, by the way, so you'll hear how he got the valuation up and the importance of his earnout and the length of it. Some Lots of good nuggets in here. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Joe Keeley. Joe Keeley, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, listen, let's talk about College Nannies. This is a company that you started. Right. Tell me a little bit about what was the inspiration behind the company in the first place. Well, it was uh, <laughs> kind of an, uh, an interesting story and a path like perhaps lots of entrepreneurs that I wasn't planning on going down. But when I was uh, an undergraduate business student uh, and I played on the hockey team at a university in Minnesota, I answered an ad that said, uh, looking for a hockey player to watch our two boys, $10 an hour. And only in Minnesota do you, do you see an ad like that. I actually, suppose. actually, Joe, you'd see ads like that in Toronto all the time. <laughs> well, Toronto, sure. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, at least in, in the States. Anyway. But, yeah. um, so I, I, I got this job as a, uh, as, a, as a nanny, although I didn't really call it that, as a big brother role model, as we like to call it in our company um, now. And I was this... Um, positive influence in this family's life, and they and they specifically sought out uh, an athlete, and they wanted someone to be with their their boys in the summer when both parents were working. And I ended up having a three year relationship where I was working for that family, and in doing so, I got to know a lot of the other the other neighbors. They said, "This is really great. Can you find me someone to watch my kids?" And on, that was really the demi- demand side of the equation. And then on the supply side of the equation, of course, I was, I was in college at the time, and a lot of my friends um, thought that this gig was pretty good, and could you find me a job? So like a lot of things, it just uh, organically happened, and I started a really simple headhunting business while I was in college. And the great thing about having a business while you're in college is that the bar is really low. <laughs> it seems like all you got to do is show up for class, you know, eating cold pizza and, and you're, you're above average. So I, I kind of immersed myself in the, uh, actually got a degree in entrepreneurship, um, was fortunate to, to win some scholarships and awards for having this really school project, including the Global Student Entrepreneur Award. And that was really the, 
the beginning of what is now college nanny sitters and tutors. And so how does it evolve from there? I mean, as you look at the arc of the business between those early days and today, are there one or two inflection points that you feel like were seminal, were just really critical to your development? Maybe you could describe those. Yeah, I would say there's there's probably uh, there's probably three important points that really stick out for me. One is going from a traditional headhunting business model to staffing firm that really changed the the economics of the business. Two, um, I had. Uh, immersed myself in, again, entrepreneurial education, took some franchising classes, and decided that what I really wanted to do, if I could make this work once, is replicate it, and that franchising was going to be the path I went down. And then finally, three, recognizing the bottleneck or the X factor in the industry, which was scheduling. And I took arrived like many of us have had many years ago, and as a parent then now uh, of two young children, or at the time, I recognized that the biggest pain was actually scheduling nannies and babysitters. So we built uh, a mobile platform, the MySitters app, that that aligned with our uh, very large group of labor across the country through our franchisees. So really, one, the business model. Two, the business model, again, I suppose, in franchising and expansion strategy. And then three, inserting technology um, that really – came to age that allowed us to more efficiently scale and leverage technology, but also provide that uh, premium service that we had been known for. Got it. The name College Nannies, I mean, when I think of college students, I think of keggers and, and, and cold pizza, you know, drifting into class late. Um, I don't think of the most responsible people on earth, certainly not people that I would actually give my child to manage. Did you ever, did you guys talk about the name? Did you, how did you overcome that stereotype that I have? I'm sure other people have it that, you know, college students aren't the most responsible people on earth. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And I think uh, for about at least half of the population of college, (laughs) the other half clearly not the half you hung out with John uh, (laughs) is those that are, you know, it's the, brand actually uh, a word it, it, it there's there's it's a value placed on education there's a, a young vivacious energetic sort of feeling associated with it now we've evolved where initially it was very descriptive that only college students we employed but now it's been more about the destination and with our brand of college tutors which we added it's about helping to get into college so and brands a funny thing you know because um, there's a lot of reasons keep and to change a brand. But I think brand is often what you it. Um, so there wasn't a marketing company that we talked to as we started consuming those services as an organization that didn't want to change it. And we evaluated it a couple times, but felt that, um, yeah, sure, it might be polarizing for some, but we found that it was really polarizing to our benefit where parents were said, that's really great. I want someone just like that first family who hired me. I want someone who is active and and doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be in college, but they really liked, they were attracted to uh, the brand and what it meant to them. Um, and certainly we had to have the screening and the training and the recruiting process that kind of filtered out those who uh, maybe were the other side of that college brand. Got it. And, and so you mentioned one of these big seminal moments being the shift between headhunting and staffing. Uh, I don't actually understand the difference between those, those two business models. So describe how those are different. So 
in a, in a traditional headhunting model, you would pay a fee, a one-time fee to find someone and then, like, let's say you income, uh, do a headhunting for an IT professional. The company in a B2B world would pay a one-time fee and then they would employ them directly. A staffing model would be they would pay the company, the staffing company, to employ the person for them. The difference is um, in, in the nanny industry where we started is that if someone stayed for two years and you got a one-time fee for them, you, you didn't make any more money off of that. So, and, and often parents were, were straddled with, do I pay this person legally or not? So taking that off the table and employing them directly thus to build a labor force and make a margin uh, every single hour that every single nanny, sitter, or tutor worked, which was a much more scalable, we were able to build a bigger business um, and then if we were essentially unemployed every time, you know, we had to go look for a, a, a new job to place rather than, than building a reoccurring revenue model over time. Got it. Got it. That, that makes sense. That's helpful for sure. Maybe you could talk about how big you got the business before you wanted to sell or, or you decided to sell. I mean, in terms of, I don't know, number of franchises, revenue, whatever, whatever proxy you want to do for, for size. Sure. We were, uh, so we were we were in our in our growth mode um, as as a brand. We were about thirty four million dollar brand, um, and that is our our franchisees together. We had just crossed over, or we're nearing that hundred uh, franchise territory mark, which is a kind of an important milestone for for franchise organizations. A, a pretty small percentage of franchise organizations get past that hundred unit mark, which which was a milestone that I think uh, you know there's a number of milestones in in small companies that I think some talk about uh, EBITDA, some talk about, um, you know, number of, you know, eyeballs or whatever it happens to be if they're a tech company. And, and for a franchise company, getting over that 100-unit mark was an important one. Interesting. And so that's $34 million across the network. So this is uh, all 100 franchisees rolled up would, would equate to $34 million in total annual revenue? Yeah. A lot of those uh, are in different stages of development. We, we had brought on a, a number of franchisees, so it was there was a, a growth curve where they had been come on, and you can look back, and many of them, those had you know zero to little revenue because they had just gotten started in within you know six to twelve months. So they would ramp up from there. So so the future was bright. I think is the is the point when when, when we look at acquisition. Um, I think you know. I, fleece stories I've heard rarely do do companies want to buy something on its way down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're still there's lots of room left to grow. It sounds like. That's right. Got it. Okay. So um, that's helpful. And and out of interest, before we get into the actual acquisition itself, what was the the biggest surprise or the most surprising thing you learned about? franchising when you went down the route of uh, learning about franchising and ultimately using that as a business model? Yeah, I think one of the, the most surprising thing for me is that success is not uniformly defined, meaning each entrepreneur or individual who goes into franchising, there's kind of a franchipreneur term that I think is appropriate, is, is, is defining success differently. So um, I just assumed that we all had the same scorecard and we all wanted to achieve the same level of success. And that's, that's not the case. Some want to want to replace a modest income. Other want, others want to build a multi-unit, multi-state, multi-million dollar uh, business and, and, and really understanding what kind of franchise company 
um, fits best for the business model that we've developed and what kind of franchisee fits best for our organization was something that, that I learned over that decade of franchising. Smart, smart. So let's get into the actual sale itself. I mean, what was the trigger event that made you want to sell College Nannies? Well, um, the trigger was we had a very large national account that um, was a public company who ultimately was our acquirer. And they, they were in the B2B corporate backup care space, meaning companies are paying for um, uh, in-home childcare for their employees as a corporate benefit so that they can get to work, which is, which is great and it helped us scale. Well, um, we became arguably an unhealthy percentage of their provider network and they became perhaps from a classic business school perspective an unhealthy percentage of of um they became an unhealthy percentage of our business as well so we were kind of faced with this uh, we had a very large uh, billion dollar public company that decided that they were ready to own um their own network and we were by far the largest so it kind of goes under the adage that it wasn't necessarily that I was ready to sell, but our buyer was ready. Your buyer was ready to buy. And, and so what percentage of your overall revenue had, had this company become? About, about 30% of our franchise network. Got it. Got it. And, and is, the, is the company's acquired public? I mean, can you tell me the name of the company so it just would contextualize sure. it? Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is Bright Horizons Families, their uh, New York Stock Exchange uh, company that predominantly owns childcare centers that are sold to corporations um, and they're headquartered out of Boston. Neat. Okay. So let's, I'm, I, let's imagine I'm, I'm, I'm Dell Computer Corporation in Austin and I'm, I, I say, you know, I really want to give childcare services to my employees so they can work late and not worry about the kids. So I would hire Bright Horizons to do that. And in, in yeah. turn, they might use college nannies to find people to fulfill that obligation. Correct. They offer both in-center and in-home childcare options, as well as a whole suite of, of services that employees of Dell would find beneficial to balance the challenges of life and work, which is, uh, of course, anyone with children and often one or two working parents knows that those are, those, those issues are, are difficult. So employers today are, um, I think becoming more and more progressive about, you know, what kind of benefits to attract and retain top talent do we need to offer? Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. It, it's funny. I've, I've got two kids, and and uh, just I guess it was day before yesterday. We're recording this in in, uh, in September. Day before yesterday, took them, you know, took them back to school, and and uh, uh, you know, I saw a lot of the the moms and dads for you know uh, dropping out their kids, and it was just a good reminder for 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 us. It's it, you know, it's always that juggle, right, between between being someone who has a career and and also being a parent. So. It's uh, it's a big uh, you know it's it's top of mind for me personally right now. So yeah. I think I I think I got the the triggering event. So did 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 Bright Horizons kind of approach you and say like we're ready to build this out? Uh, we're either going to build something of our own or or maybe we can acquire you guys. Yeah, you know, um, it, we the great thing about I think, and we'll get into kind of life after, I suppose, because I still run the company for them yep. um, and, and enjoy doing it. But to say we dated for eight years. So, you know, I was going to their headquarters for years and years as a, as a very important vendor, and they were a very important 
customer of ours. So I got to know the executive team uh, personally, and we got to a point where we kind of all kind of felt where this was going. And what was interesting is we had developed some significant technology that I had mentioned before. And um, we started working together on integrating that technology. And, and I think the trigger point was um, they had gotten comfortable of wanting to own um, their network of care. They, they really saw the value of what we were doing. We had matured, again, past that 100 franchise story where we were substantial enough that was probably worth the diligence and, and that, this, um, that we were the clear leader in the market and had disrupted this cottage industry of the nanny business. But in integrating the technology and working together on that, sometimes it's hard, and it was for us, to integrate um, technology with two separate companies because it brings up the question, which is mine, which is yours, and which is ours? And it created enough friction that I think it would just simply be easier if we were working on this project where we didn't have to go through the laboring kind of co-development agreements, and, and I wasn't particularly interested in in, in in uh, uh, giving up any rights to our technology, which we had really as a core competency. Isn't that interesting how, how technology integration was that sort of triggering event? And so did they make the first move? Did they, they kind of sit you down over a glass of wine or beer and say, Joe, we want to buy the company? Yeah. Um, and, and again, we're on this first name basis and, and uh, as we're working through this and, and it, it, it was, hey, maybe it's time <laughs> and, uh, for you, for you to kind of formally join us, you've been coming here for years. We like you, we respect you, and vice versa. So, um, so that's how it started. Got it. And then, where does it go from there, Joe? Well, um, it, interesting. It, 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 that created um, what we hoped was going to be a six-month diligence and, and road to closing, which turned out to be an eleven-month diligence and road to closing, um, uh, and and these things take a lot of time and can and be grueling. And even though how, uh, no matter how well you know each other, diligence by a public company is still diligence by a public company. So it, it, that, that really began, and I think something to be mindful of entrepreneurs and principals is that um, selling a company, I think, is, a, is another full-time job. So when you're in that diligence process, I mean, have they given you some sort of letter of intent or any initial indication of value that they think the company's worth? Yeah. So you, you kind of start dancing a little bit until, and okay, where, where are we going to go? And here's our process. And it, it really, where it kicks it off is if you can get to a non-binding letter of intent, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so that's where we started, but um, and that's an important milestone for everyone. I mean, it kind of says, okay, we have alignment here, um, and it took some time to get to that point. But then there's still, you know, there's still a, a couple of miles left to go on that run. I think after that, when you got the first version of the non-binding letter of intent, I mean, what multiple of EBITDA were they offering? Well, uh, in in this instance, and like I think many. Um, it's a range depending on how you want to look at it because um, there was a, an earnout, which is, I think, pretty common and I think something that um, many entrepreneurs uh, kind of intellectually kind of could be okay with, but, but it, it doesn't mean that the deal is really done until that's done. So, you know, we're due to the technology nature and a franchise company 
we have really two things that made our business unique from a valuation perspective. One is um, the mobile platform and our proprietary technology that we developed. So I think you have a service company, which is one valuation, a technology, which is another valuation, and then we're a franchisor. And a franchisor is uh, a lot like a subscription business, uh, a topic that I know that, that you're certainly um, fond of, John. But uh, a subscription business and franchising are similar because franchisees sign 10-year agreements and pay a percentage of their revenue. So you have this reoccurring revenue stream that you predict. The importance of the mobile platform, I mean, did they already recognize it, or did you have to sort of uh, keep reminding them that you're not just a service company, you've got these, these killer assets? Yeah, you, you really have to be an advocate, especially um, you know where where we where there wasn't a, uh, an investment bank representing us going to market on this. So the book wasn't created, and the, so they knew more than than your average company would about us in terms of looking under the hood. But but you still need to advocate for that. And I think generally speaking, my experience, and I think the experience of a lot of folks who've gone through this, and it makes sense, is that. You know, naturally, whether it's a, a real estate home acquisition or selling a company, generally speaking, sellers want to sell for the most possible and buyers want to buy for the least possible. And I think they have to make their case for that. And, you know, where it only really happens is when you have one willing buyer and one willing seller that, that come to terms on something. As you were growing the business, Joe, in the earlier days before, you know, the Bright Horizons top you know, conversations started, had, had you got a sense of what you thought the company was worth? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you can look at industry multiples. Um, I think when you start factoring in, I mean, franchise industry multiples are, you know, can be somewhere between six and 12. So you could use that as a proxy. You know, who knows about who defines themselves as a tech company and what the multiples are there and, unicorns and everything else. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. And I find to be not very helpful as it relates to, you know, your, your typical business, even if they do have, uh, especially ones that aren't dramatically funded by VCs and otherwise. So I, I kind of knew that there's an accelerator that one can pay on the technology, but um, so I had to take that into account, but, um, but try to be a little bit more conservative because what I've have experienced is, you know, so many, um, you know, entrepreneurs and myself, you know, you, you grow a company, you'd love to sell it someday. But, um, but I think as we've had discussions on it, it can be a little bit of a black hole, not only in how to do it, but then how to, how to value it and time it and, and what can you control and what can't you control. So valuation is one of those things. Like at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, if you do have some unique aspects, I think you have to make the case of what makes it unique outside of industry multiples, because otherwise, um, it, it, there isn't a, there has to be a really good reason that any company or any financial buyer or strategic buyer is going to want to pay a premium for something because they need to get a return on that. In a way, I'm surprised on some level at how high the valuation was given how kind of dependent you were becoming on them, being that they were almost a third of your revenue, did, did you, were you at all surprised that they, they didn't use that as more leverage over you? Um, I suppose a, a little bit, but, um, you know, I think that, 
since then they've uh, you know the asset has been you know increased in value in terms of you know our technology so i guess it's it's all it's all a function of what do we think we can turn it into so um the other the other thing is um multiples can be deceiving as well i mean we weren't we weren't necessarily um and this is part of my case designing the company for for optimal um optimal profit you know we're in, we were continuing to while we were profitable of course um w- w- the argument that i made is that we're not um you know we're investing in this business and we're not on the market right now you know it's it's one thing i think when you go to the market and you run a process it's another thing when someone knocks on your door and says you know we're interested so in other words, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, if, if you take the business to market through an M&A professional, they're going to do, they're going to adjust the EBITDA, uh, the profit and loss statement to maximize the EBITDA. Uh, you weren't doing that. Essentially, you were running the business, you were investing in it, you were taking on expenses that you may have characterized differently had you had the view that you were going to take it to market. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And there's a, there's a, a little bit of that. But um, I, I really try to, at the same token, in running the business, um, in terms of really trying not to run a lifestyle business, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the intent was to build this company to to sell it, and I knew that in order for it to really reach its full potential, it would need to have a different owner. And I'm I'm pleased to be still at the helm and running the company, but with a different balance sheet behind us. And one thing I felt like I needed to do in order to build this to sell was to um, really run tight books. And we had, as a franchisor, required to have an audit every year and, and, and things of that nature. So, you know, I felt like one could look at the P&L, which was relatively simple, and, and there wasn't going to be a lot of you know, entrepreneurial Mickey Mouse accounting practices there. Sometimes I think folks are, you know, their wages are either inflated or deflated as it relates to the um, owner's um, benefit, so on and so forth. It was really, we ran things really clean, which I think is is a, a lesson that I learned that's really beneficial, particularly, um, you know, when you look to sell because it makes understanding what really is here a lot easier than having to normalize all these statements. And then there's always a question about that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you should raise that. We, we, I did an interview with a guy uh, who started blinds.com hundred million dollar brand. And um, he had, he said the exact same thing. His, his uh, uh, sort of p- position on it was slightly different in that he said, we want to run this company as if we're going public. Like we would have to go through right. the scrutiny of the public markets. That's the level of of, uh, of bookkeeping we want to have. He he never intended necessarily to go public, but that was what he challenged his sort of uh, his CFO to uh, to deliver. And it sounds very similar in your case, uh, the the sort of tightness and crispness of the bookkeeping and professionalization. And I think that, that um, you know, one thing I learned in in the uh, diligence process that I would do differently is. Is and, and again, I thought we were we ran things uh, maybe not with the it, it, to the extent that as if we were going public, but we ran things really clean and really tight. And we were an we had it audited every year, so a lot of really good things that made diligence easier. What would have made diligence easier and faster even more is to um, understand what kind of diligence list, let's say, a public company is going to look for, and then just keep those sorts of that sort of uh, data organized. 
because in organized in a in an encrypted dat, uh, you know cloud-based environment just as normal practice so that you could easily give someone access if you wanted to into an organized folder of the last three to five years of information um, if one because that's a lot of work and it's going it's a, a range of severity depending on how organized one is, is. and so to you know, have that ready would be something I would do differently. Got it. Got it. Like have a, almost like keeping a data room up and running all the time. Yeah. And with today's cloud-based storage and, and safe and secure, um, you know, not, not all of it is, but certain products is relatively inexpensive and you have to store this information anyway. Why not do it in a way um, that should something uh, come up, whether it's an advisor, a suitor that, um, you know, could be easily shared. Makes a lot of sense. What's life been like since the acquisition? I'm sorry? What's life been like for you personally since the acquisition? You know, it's funny. Um, it, it, people, people ask me, of course, a lot, like, what's your next thing? And I kind of tell them, well, actually, this is my next thing. Because um, when it's been, it's been very, very busy because, um, you know, we, we, we agreed as part of the deal to really aggressively grow the company. And, and, and I've learned a lot working inside and for and part of a public company. Um, it's definitely uh, a different experience than, than running my own for, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, but it's been, uh, I've been, I've been working hard growing. I mean, since we, we're now at almost 175 franchise territories to give kind of a sense of scale. Um, and, uh, and, and starting to really plug into the the network to that is the Bright Horizons to really bring value to to children and families, which is which is a passion of ours, of course, because we were very much aligned on that. So probably working harder than I have before, <laughs> to be honest. How long's the year now? Um, it's a three year, but uh, you know we're we're both kind of looking at this to say uh, you know um, hopefully both. Them and us want to want to keep going. Is the idea? Did you buy yourself a trophy, some you know, some conspicuous gift to yourself or to your family that uh, that you mark as as sort of a uh, an emblem of selling your company? It, <laughs> uh, it, it maybe I should have, but uh, my wife and I took a took a little a little trip and and, uh, and and relaxed for a little bit. Um, but, uh, but, but, but no, no big trophy I could, uh, unfortunately tell you about. <laughs> Travel is a great experience and, and, uh, I, I commend you on doing that for sure. Uh, Joe, this has been great. Where, where do people find you? What's the best? Is there, is there somewhere, uh, I mean, do you have a LinkedIn profile? If, if our listeners wanted to kind of reach out to you, is there, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah. LinkedIn is best. Just, uh, uh, Joe Keeley, no spaces. Awesome. And that's K-E-E-L-E-Y. Yes, sir. Joe Keeley, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com.
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.